Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Will. I'm Zach, and today we are thrilled to have Dr. Peter Berkowitz with us. Dr. Berkowitz is the Tad and Diane Taub Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He serves as the Program Dean for the Hertog Political Studies Program and Dean of Students for the Public Interest Fellowship, in addition to teaching for the Tikva Fund in the United States and Israel. He is the 2017 winner of the Bradley Prize, and his work focuses on constitutionalism, liberal education, national security, and Middle East politics. He's also the featured speaker for the formal dedication of the Eggert Dining Room at the Athenaeum of Claremont McKenna. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bergowitz. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. To get started, we'd like to ask our guests to share an inflection point, a moment in their personal or professional life that they had to adjust or change direction. Could you share a moment with us? Sure. Uh, and as long as I'm here at, uh, at a top liberal arts college, um, I can discuss one of many inflection points, uh, which was um, my education at Swarthmore College on the East Coast. And I think it's fair to say that I arrived at uh, Swarthmore as a uh, callow young man. And the opportunity to study literature and philosophy and psychology at Swarthmore, the encounter with uh, some truly outstanding professors, conversations to all hours of the night with uh, fellow students, um, the reading of, uh, of a number of uh, books that became very special to me opened my eyes and uh, set me on, set me on a, a, a different life path than the one I expected when I uh, arrived at Swarthmore College. What was the path before? Uh, I was going to be a big-time tennis player. Oh. So you could also say that limitation of talent uh, <laughs> also uh, uh, influenced my decision. And apart from that, uh, I didn't really have, uh, have concrete plans. But by the time I left Swarthmore, I knew that uh, one thing above all was very important to me, and that was to acquire more education. Because from what I learned at Swarthmore, I learned it, and I learned a lot at Swarthmore. Um, but I especially learned that I needed to learn more. So that had a big impact. I think some listeners might find it a tad surprising that you got out of your undergraduate college experience the need to have more experience in higher education, given how much of your professional career has been dedicated towards criticisms of the American higher education system. Ah, yes. Well, uh, good question. Um, so for one thing, uh, I'm old enough to have uh, um, gone to college in a significantly different time period. Um, there's no doubt that, uh, that the Swarthmore College of my day, this is a Swarthmore College of 20 years before my day, this is a Swarthmore College today, was a college that uh, leaned decisively to the left, the faculty, the students, the, much of the spirit. At the same time, the curriculum and the classroom, neither the curriculum nor the classroom, were particularly politicized. So I went through several majors, went through economics, went through psychology, went through philosophy, uh, finally landed on English literature. Among, uh, I, don't, I don't know that much about Claremont, except that I, I do know that uh, organizations like Heterodox Academy have high respect for um, free speech here, 
in the curriculum. But at many colleges and universities across the land, the curriculum classroom is highly politicized. It wasn't at Swarthmore. When I studied English literature, I was taught poetry. I was taught, um, I was taught Shakespeare. I was taught novels. I was taught to ask questions. Uh, it's not that we weren't interested in politics at the time, partisan politics, electoral politics of the day, but uh, they were not part of, uh, of the classroom. Uh, and it's not that what I was learning in the classroom seemed to me to be irrelevant to politics, to my situation as a, as a, as a human being. Uh, it's that in the classroom what was urgent was to understand romantic poetry or St. Augustine or Thomas Hobbes uh, or what have you. So, uh, so because uh, the liberal education, the spirit of liberal education, was fairly strong at Swarthmore at that time, um, I learned a very important lesson that there were riches within uh, the tradition that I was inheriting, with which I was uh, unfamiliar. As I encountered these riches, I became uh, richer, meaning intellectually, morally richer, and I wanted more of it. Can you expand that criticism then of, of liberal education today? You've talked about um, in the past the hollowing out of the core curriculum. Um, can you expand on that? And then also um, talk maybe about what people are missing from that hollowing out. Sure. Um, when I say uh, that the curriculum is being uh, hollowed out and politicized, I mean that uh, that liberal education like any other education, involves a certain substance. It involves learning to walk before you uh, run. If you were learning, for example, to uh, play guitar, learning to dance, uh, learning to play basketball, you would not instruct the coach or the music teacher or the dance teacher on what were the first steps. You would not decide what the first steps are. There is a curriculum in each of these activities. Um, I, I think the same is true of what we call liberal education, even as it's an education for freedom. So uh, it seems to me that uh, all students who wish to become educated really do need to know uh, some classical history and classical thought. They need to know uh, about religion, about the Bible, about its tremendous impact on uh, what I, I won't hesitate to call Western civilization. They need to know about the rise of the modern era, its history, its literature, its philosophy, its science, and so on. And all of this in order to make sense of who we are today, what our possibilities are, what the tremendous goods that we've inherited, and the ways in which we can improve uh, our system, which, like any system, is considerably short of perfect. The kinds of education you were describing initially that all have very clear first steps, learning how to shoot a basketball, play guitar, are clearly specific and vocational. Uh, you've written approvingly on how liberal education is different than that and quoted uh, John Stuart Mill's idea that liberal education is about building the whole person. Yes. Do you think the freedom for students to choose what they take 
rather than just having a certain core forced upon them is important to the exploration that's involved in building out your academic personhood? Yes, of course, choice is important, but um, I would not exaggerate its importance. And of course, there's a kind of paradox in my suggesting that liberal education is an education for freedom and nevertheless wishing to impose a certain discipline upon students. But when I think about that paradox, I think about um, a lesson I learned from the uh, music critic Stanley Crouch. It was once uh, I heard him discussing jazz and the blues. And he said that um, he claimed that jazz and the blues, which is no doubt one of America's contributions to world historical music, he said that this contribution is different from most other forms, classic contributions to world historical music. How so? He especially contrasted it to classical European music. Generally and for the most part, when it comes to um, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, the other greats, you're not permitted to add notes and subtract notes. You may interpret them your way, but you don't add and subtract. Every night, it's basically the same piece in the symphonies and orchestras. Or orchestras. It says, but jazz and the blues are different. Why? Because great works of jazz and the blues incorporate room for improvisation, creativity, choice. Every night, a great piece of jazz is a little different. It's a recognizable piece, but there's opportunity for the musicians to invent, bring into the world something new. What was Crouch's point? His point was this. Not everybody in jazz is permitted to improvise. Not everybody can play the classical pieces. Those who improvise, men and women, who have trained incessantly, have been playing the stand-up bass, the clarinet, the jazz guitar, piano, drums, what have you, for years upon years and upon years, a long training, a long apprenticeship. It seems to me freedom is something like that. It's not just doing as you please. It's learning. Um, it's acquiring virtues. It's acquiring knowledge that both uh, informs what pleases you to do and gives you intellectual, moral, moral spiritual equipment to choose well and even to choose creatively. So the sort of education you're talking about, um, I think these days is often, you know, somewhat um, constrained to liberal arts schools um, and also certainly constrained to those who can afford to go to college mm. um, and, and go to good colleges too. Um, do you see this as, is this a problem? Um, and if so, is there a solution or is there a way to broaden this sort of liberal education um, to the rest of society? Because it is, liberal education is supposed to be part of society, isn't that? Right. It, right. You can be part of society and nevertheless um, be, be restricted or more or less restricted, not on the basis of law, not on the basis of forbidden categories. Um, it's always been the case that liberal, the kind of liberal education you all receive, Claremont McKenna College, is, um, has been the province of, excuse the expression, gentlemen, elites. It's always been the case. And it's not obvious that everybody in society is, uh, 
is designed or well suited for for liberal education, or at least the, the that part of liberal education that culminates with a liberal arts college. So, no, in my view, it's not urgent for the nation that every single eighteen-year-old uh, receive an education like that offered uh, at your college. Uh, however. I do also understand liberal education broadly. Seems to me the entire education in a liberal democracy like the United States should be oriented toward preparing citizens for freedom, basic freedom. Meaning what? Meaning uh, the acquisition of literacy. It seems to me is part of the uh, part of the preparation for freedom acquisition of basic knowledge about the country in which you live, in addition to literacy, seems to me part of liberal education. Well, K through 12 education provides um, a number of years in which uh, young men and women, boys and girls and then young men and women, acquire literacy and can acquire a basic knowledge of the principles underlying the country um, if they're good students, they can also begin to acquire knowledge of other countries and other civilizations, which I regard as part of uh, truly liberal education. So all of the education is focused in this direction. It's justified in these terms, justified in terms of freedom. Uh, but I, I, I don't see an urgency right now that we create, uh, that we ensure that every last 18-year-old uh, go to uh, go to a college like like this one, and I and I don't see that there's um, right now a pent up um, an unsatisfied demand. Now I want to touch again on or go back or really underscore the point about liberal education linking to something further. What is it about liberal education, studying the classics, studying American and Western civilization, that links? or trains people for a free society? Sure. Uh, there are a number of aspects to this. First, it seems to me a uh, civilized human being has has a sense of who she or he is, where he or she is, has uh, come from. Uh, the center of liberal education provides you with that knowledge, knowledge about your own society, what are its enduring principles, what has been its trajectory, what are its achievements, what are its failures is a very important part of uh, liberal education. Many of those failures one discovers are only failures in light of your own society's principles. So much of education, Socratic education, overlaps with liberal education, involves self-knowledge. We are creatures. All of us who are here at this college, live in the United States, are in part creatures of the American constitutional order and Western civilization. To know ourselves, our strengths, and our limitations, we study it. That part has to do with what John Stuart Mill called furnishing our minds with literature and history and philosophy, math and science, and so on. But also, um, we want... I believe, citizens in liberal democracies to have certain qualities, civility, toleration, uh, a certain empathy, 
ability to understand the perspective of others. And I believe that liberal education, well understood, fosters those qualities. That's what I mean by liberal education refining the mind. Liberal education should also be teaching students to ask tough questions of the books they're reading, to ask tough questions of one another, to see things from a multiplicity of points of view. Mill sa- John Stuart Mill says in On Liberty, um, quite rightly I believe, that the study of morals and politics is unlike the study of mathematics, arithmetic. In arithmetic, he said, generally and for the most part, I know there are uh, um, uh, exotic forms of mathematics, but generally and for the most part, there is nothing to be said on the other side of the question of what 2 plus 2 equals. 2 plus 2 equals 4. We don't hold debates resolved 2 plus 2 equals 4 or resolved 2 plus 2 equals 5. Why? Because there's nothing interesting to be said you will, no students will come, I think, <laughs> to a debate, resolve 2 plus 2 equals 5. But generally and for the most part, moral questions and political questions are not like that. With regard to moral and political questions, there's almost always something to be said on the other side, even of opinions you find extremely disagreeable. I don't say that there aren't hateful opinions. Of course there are hateful opinions. But in politics, and again, morals, almost always something to be said on the other side of the question. The study of the history of our literature and our philosophy and our religious questions trains us better to appreciate what can be said on the other side of the questions from from our own. So in furnishing our minds and refining our minds, liberal education seems to me to make us, uh, when it's done well, more civil, more tolerant, endows us with uh, greater empathy, uh, all qualities, it seems to me, we want to encourage in liberal and democratic citizens. I think uh, a lot of students would agree with me that Claremont McKenna has done quite a good job, and I think a lot of schools probably do a good job, of encouraging their students to be tolerant of opinions they disagree with. And administrations increasingly, as a result of current events in the past couple of years that seem to have demonstrated students don't agree with it, have been hammering home that you should have exposure to opinions you disagree with. What are those opinions? Who are those speakers that John Stuart Mill said might have some portion of the truth, even if they don't have all of it? Who is the heterodox thinker that we should be inviting to campus next or in lieu of that? doing our own reading in our private time in order to gain a greater appreciation. Yes. Well, uh, well, I do agree with you that um, Claremont McKenna is, uh, is doing extremely well on these uh, issues. I think we've already said Heterodox Academy gave, gave uh, Claremont very high ratings. Um, I, I don't agree that colleges and uh, universities across the land are doing a good job. You guys, yes. Um, not so many others. Um, so I think it's actually, though, a bit of a mistake to think that um, the challenge for colleges and universities is to invite a wider range of speakers. Um, sure, go. please do that. I'd like to see it. But the real problem is the curriculum. The curriculum, in my uh, observation, encourages a certain one-sidedness. In my, uh, in my observation, cur- the curriculum from college to college 
tends to overwhelmingly encourage uh, a progressive point of view, tends to uh, omit uh, conservative ideas. I'll give you some examples. May not, may not be true here, but in many colleges and universities, it's extremely difficult to read, um, let's say, uh, Edmund Burke or uh, Friedrich Hayek, to say nothing of the tradition of, um, of uh, conservatism in American political thought. Russell Kirk, William, My William Buckley, Frank Myers, uh, Irving Cristo. There's a rich literature on this subject. It's not read. Um, there are whole subjects that are, uh, are, tend to be... Um, tend to be avoided in history departments these days, diplomatic history, constitutional history, military history, religious history. No two activities have been more dominant in human civilization than war and, um, and pursuit of the divine, the attempt to live in accordance with transcendent truth. And yet, uh, the study of religion and the study of war are, in my judgment, grossly neglected. Again, I don't speak about uh, here specifically, but in general, throughout the nation, at our leading colleges uh, and universities. This produces a kind of, in my view, a devastating kind of one-sidedness. will not be cured by inviting uh, this this speaker or that cons uh, conservative speaker to campus, what we're talking about is a drastic reform of the curriculum. So understanding that the curriculum, the underlying curriculum that people study day-to-day -day is, is far more important, we do want to you know, kind of challenge our listeners to confront maybe a view of yours that they would not otherwise be um, agreeable or agree with. So, <laughs> and, and don't worry, don't worry. Um, <laughs> you've said before that, you know, conservatism, classical conservatism, views dedication to moral virtue, family, um, nation, and faith as indispensable to its preservation. Yes. Can you make that case to our listeners? Why Why is that? Especially things like religion, which are you know, kind of falling off um, on, on college campuses often. Yes. Well, um, classical conservatism uh, reminded us that politics is not the be-all and end all of uh, human life, and that we um, should not expect politics to either supply the greatest satisfactions, the greatest goods, nor should we expect the political sphere to somehow be self-sustaining. We go back to the analogies to basketball and, uh, and music and dance. Citizenship, participation in the life of the nation, and Taking care of ourselves, taking our as adult human beings, as grown-up human beings, requires, you could call them, uh, certain qualities of mind and character. If you want it to be more classical, which I often do, you could call them virtues. But if you wish, qualities of mind and character. Where did they come from? They don't in the first place come from these qualities of mind and character. They don't in, in the first place come from your college education. They come in the first place from the up, your upbringing in your family, how you were raised from the very beginning. 
up through your toddler years, through uh, through K through twelve education. Your most important educators are your parents. Teach you good habits, and hopefully these habits include not only habits of of uh, hygiene and manners, but courage, generosity, magnanimity. They give you the bases for uh, being good friends, for conducting conversations effectively, for listening well. All this starts in the home. So uh, the conservative view, I, I myself think it's a sensible view that all should share, is that the family is a hugely important unit to, um, to our well-being. I, I understand that there are alternative kinds of family. I recognize that. That doesn't change the fact that what we learn in families is hugely important to our, to our prospects in life. Well, what about faith, you say? Well, um, it's only a relatively new development in human history for people to grow up in secular households outside of faith. You all might say, some of your class might say, well, it's a darn good thing too. At last, as Mark said, we've thrown off the snakeskin, we've shed the snakeskin of religion. Maybe it's a good thing, uh, maybe not. What's for sure the case is we haven't, we've only begun to run this experiment. And before we began to run this experiment roughly 200 years ago or so, we were much more advanced in the experiment, it was understood that uh, religious faith also um, and religious community and religious worship uh, also instilled virtues that we want uh, democratic citizens to, to possess a range of moral virtues, um, a sense of uh, limitation on the kinds of conduct that are appropriate, a sense of duty, a sense of mission and purpose in life. We want democratic citizens to, uh, to possess. Um, what else was in your list besides uh, family and faith? Civil uh, society? Nation. Na moral, na yeah, nation. Na na nation too. Uh, Burke famously in uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France, a 1790 book that was sharp critique of the French revolutionaries, spoke of the, quote, little platoon, close quote, where one acquires the virtues that eventually uh, enable oneself to uh, devote oneself both to the nation and to, uh, to, humanity, uh, to humanity as a whole. Uh, concerning the nation, it seems to me quite proper to recognize the benefits that the nation confers upon you, beginning with national security and prosperity. We in the United States are very accustomed to take the security we enjoy and the prosperity that we enjoy for granted, as if, as if the extraordinary surroundings about you students here in, uh, in California are the common lot of mankind. Well, they aren't the United States um, protected by two large oceans and relatively peaceful neighbors, north and south, big military investments and, uh, and so on, enable the kind of education that is very rare that, that, uh, that you all enjoy. So uh, all of these commitments, it seems to me, uh, uh, help develop those virtues that are necessary for citizens who are going to be able to contribute to liberal democracy, defend liberal democracy, and very important, reform it. Nothing that I've said uh, 
I hope nothing I've said is understood to imply that I believe everything is hunky-dory in the United States. I don't, but I also believe that responsible reform takes place in light of an appreciation of, um, of what the political society stands for, the benefits you've already received from it, and, and responsible reform generally and for the most part is a reform that calls upon political society to better live up to its principles. I happen to think the principles of this political society, starting with the assumption or the self-evident truth of the um, natural freedom and equality of all human beings, a society to that dedicated to that principle, is a society well worth um, defending. And sometimes we have to call it back to that, that first principle. I think that a lot of people of my generation struggle, or at least my age, maybe we'll change with time, <laughs> uh, struggle to identify very strongly with the unique values of the United States. Maybe you would say that's because of our education. As far as I see it, I think it's because there's a widely shared sentiment, whatever its origin, that it's kind of random. We were born Americans. It was random. We were born into whatever city, whatever community, whatever family we're in. And so why is it any more special that uh, we call upon American traditions rather than traditions of, say, for a lot of my peers, the Scandinavian states that seem to have a lot going right in terms of their political culture and organization? Uh, what's special about calling upon the traditions of where you happen to have been born into? Uh, well, it, uh, yes, you're right. It sounds uh, a little odd to me to speak of just happen to have been born to your parents and uh, your family. Uh, it's sort of inconceivable that either of you might have been born to other parents. You'd be f entirely different people. Um, now, it's true, so it's not random that you were born to your parents. It's true that you had no control over it. But it wasn't random. Um, the fact that you were born to your parents, however, means, it seems to me, that you acquired certain debts. It was those two people, or whoever it was that raised you, that um, defended you when you were utterly defenseless. When we come into the world, we are utterly defenseless and entirely dependent. We can't take care of ourselves. Left to our own, we perish within hours, if not maybe a little longer, okay? So you acquire a debt, it seems to me, or at least a decent person recognizes the debt that he or she, she acquires toward his or her parents. Similarly, you acquire a debt toward the country in which you live because the security and the prosperity and the freedom that distinguishes the United States uh, make it possible for you to be who and what you are. Now, it's also true that the freedom that we all enjoy in the United States, warts and all, enables us eventually to become educated and discover that some peoples, many peoples, arrange their political lives differently. Scandinavians arrange their lives one way. The Venezuelans have chosen to arrange their lives a different way. The Iranians, another way. The Russians, the Chinese, and so on down the line. 
And it's true, a, a properly liberal education enables you to see that. And at some point, you come to compare and contrast your way with other ways. My own view is, um, is that uh, many, many, many reasonable Americans, well-educated, if they are well-educated, they will come to appreciate both their indebtedness to the United States and, uh, and the superiority of the United States, especially for them, people who acquire, who speak this language, whose habits are the habits of freedom. Remember that it's particularly a habit of mind of one born in the United States to say, hmm, mightn't I choose to do things the way the Scandinavians or the Venezuelans or the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians do things? When you are behaving like that, you're not behaving as a merely free person or as a, uh, I should say, you're not behaving in a merely random way. They don't do that as much in Russia or China or Venezuela. Americans who are designed for choice do that. So it seems to me people who reflect on their capacity for choice, their capacity to compare their lives to the Scandinavians, if they do that seriously and then study the American model, um, they will come to see uh, advantages of, of the American model. Although um, I, I fully recognize that some may say, um, I like it better the way they do in Scandinavia. And you know what? One of the benefits of the United States is that, go right ahead, move to Scandinavia. Or, by the way, and it's also true, I don't want to make light of this possibility, if you think that the Scandinavian model is in one way or the other superior, well, all you have to do is persuade a majority of your fellow citizens to adopt this law or that law that looks more like the Scandinavian model. It's hard to do that, by the way, in Venezuela or Russia or China or Iran to make your country look more like Scandinavia. That seems to me to, to uh, be another advantage of the United States, which um, might also put um, limitation on how much you want the United States to come to resemble Scandinavia. Well, quickly, the last question we yes. ask all our guests is, um, what is your personal definition of success, and how would you help students listening to this podcast define success for themselves? Oh, well, um, I'd be, I'm very, very reluctant to define uh, success, too, in, uh, in substantive terms because, um, because I recognize uh, uh, how different we all are. We come into the world with different talents and abilities, different life prospects, um, we develop in different ways. But I, but I can speak uh, about success from a, what, what constitutes success, uh, a successful liberal education. Um, if, you leave, if you leave this college knowing uh, more than you came in about, again, literature, history, and philosophy, the ideas, the events that have formed the civilization that have contributed to forming you. If you're better able to ask questions, if you're better able to listen to people with dissenting points of view, if you have more capacity to discern, even in what you regard as disagreeable opinions, that kernel of abiding truth, 
if you under if you leave college with the appreciation that education is a lifetime enterprise, then I think you uh, should count yourself lucky and should have considered you should consider yourself to have ex- succeeded in uh, in uh, in achieving a good start in your liberal education. Sadly, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Berkowitz. Uh, and to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>